This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined today, as so many days, by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Oh, hi. Hello. And Senior Writer at Tablet, Leah Leibovitz. Peace and love, peace and love. Today, two Jews, no Gentiles. This is a Gentile-free show. For those of you who are scared of Gentiles, who have thought, I'll listen to this podcast, but there are too many non-Jews there, it's not a safe space, this week is just... Just us. It's, I mean, honestly, the real the real reason is that we just don't know any Gentiles. We've literally run out of we Gentiles. We have meetings every week. It's like, do we know any? It's like, I don't really I know. I heard there are some out there. And what's great is we get so many, so many recommendations from the wonderful J. Crew for people we should have on. I mean, this week we had two people suggest to us that we have on Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. And, and we, we should. Know. And we should. And by the way, one of those calls, two... They were both from people who saw him speak in Virginia, of all oh, places. Yeah, there was a this lot week. of chatter on the Facebook group about lot seeing of him in DC this week. Chatter weekend. about his mid Atlantic appearance. And of course, he is terrific. And of course, he is the father of our former producer, Shira. But we, you know, surprisingly, we had thought of having him. Like, he's in our <laughs> wheelhouse. He's on the list. We're going to have a bit. But none of you ever sends us, like, you know, you should have on is this remarkable Lutheran. It, it, we just, you're no help with that. The people. only the only Gentile we know is Pete Booty Judge. <laughs> Pete Booty Judge. And he's all of a sudden really tough to get. We should have had him on when he was just mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Uh, more on Booty Judge in a moment. The Jews we're going to have on this week, aside from ourselves, are therapist and author Lori Gottlieb, author of the new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And also, um, we're finally getting on the air an interview I did in Cleveland. This was uh, the morning after our Cleveland live show. I had breakfast with this guy I'd met on the airplane named Harley Cohen, who was this uh, fascinating character. Right, I have to stop you right there. This is this is kind of a good intro, I think, to, to the show. It tells you everything you need to know about us, that we have very distinct in-flight personalities. <laughs> Stephanie Bunting, what do you do on a, on a flight? I sit down, I buckle up, I like turn on a movie, and I don't talk to anyone. All right, on a flight, I would uh, scowl. Yeah, you do. So they're looking angry. He doesn't and, do anything. You have like a right. small book in your hands. Yeah, preferably like a leather bound. Read t- something. Volume. Right, right. Read something that would like really turn other people off from conversation. You don't want to talk to the person reading that. Right. Mark Bencion Shlomo Oppenheimer, on the other hand, <laughs> is to the surprise of exactly no one, is kind of a talker. Stephanie, do you recall the flight I in question? You and I were sitting on like opposite aisles, up but kind of in the middle of the plane, and then Mark was like stuck uh, avoiding way, way back. Yeah, and I was in the back. And we're like, all of a sudden, we're like, who is that guy he's talking to? And then it's like, he's talking the entire time. Yeah, to why this is Mark guy. laughing and having a great time with so some stranger? I picture him in like a tie dye shirt, not you, Harley. Uh, yeah. Maybe that's just because well, of what I know after the fact. What had happened was that I had seen him in the gate at the airport in New York, and he was talking to some Lubavitchers who had had their big confab, their big Kinus, uh that weekend. And so, but he was talking to them like he knew them, and he had a Grateful Dead uh, trucker cap on. So, I was, and then I ended up being seated next to him. And for I thought, most people, that is an invitation <laughs> to, to move three rows up and not make eye contact. To you, of course, like, hey, I'm Mark Oppenheimer. What's your name? Anyway, it turns out he's exactly the guy to talk to to explain a phenomenon I've always wondered about, which is the the Jewish deadhead, or as we call them in college, the crispy Jew. And because uh, you know, there's like ten kinds of Jews. One of them is the jam band Jew, and he's the guy who's going to talk to us about it. Turns out he's deep in. He's seen dozens and dozens of jam band shows. Uh, he remembers four. <laughs> And so I record the next morning I took my 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 roadie, my mobile unit to um the deli, Corky and Lenny's, is that what it was called? Yeah, because we had gone to Jack's the day before. Right. So we had a lot of hit, drama between those two delis. Had to hit up the other one and 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 Harley and I sat down and he ordered the usual because he's known to everyone in town. And we had a great conversation and we're gonna play that as our second Jew of the Week conversation. But first, a little news of us. I will go first. 
this past Shabbat, Saturday morning, I was in synagogue at Bethel right, don't brag. Kesser Israel. No, no th- th- it's not about me. This isn't. A, they're not all about me. I was in synagogue, Beth El Kesser Israel, New Haven, Connecticut. The parsha was Shemini, which is one of two places in Torah where you get the laws of kashrut, of what you can eat and can't eat. After services, we're sitting at lunch and we're talking uh, with some friends at the table. And one of them says, you know that breast milk is parv. <laughs> and I said, you mean like animal breast, like cow's milk? Oh no, it's No, it's not. Which raises the whole question of are udders breasts? I, I guess they're not. But he said, no, 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 no. Human breast milk is parv. You can you can mix it with your, you know, meat sandwich or with your cheese sandwich. And I said, but but why why would you want to? <laughs> my my kids are sitting there. You know, it's, it's a mixed mixed crowd. And he said, well, I know this because in the town where I used to live, I had this these friends. They were this really crazy couple, and they had gotten religious, and they were keeping very very strict kashrut. But they really missed cheeseburgers. And so they were collecting her breast milk to make breast milk moz- oh, breast milk mozzarella Lord. so that they could put it on breast milk mozzarella. Their kosher burgers and have a kosher cheeseburger. That so, to me that that to me is like a loophole too far. <laughs> <laughs> just don't have a cheeseburger. Like just you you can't. So rather than go to the Whole Foods and buy the cashew cheese, right, right. you were like, honey. Bring the pump because I'm really in the mood. So, so wow. I said, so then I said to him, I said, did they succeed? Like, did they eventually collect enough of the breast milk and find the right cultures and figure out how to do it and go to the right hippie weirdo out on the farm in the burbs and and make their breast milk moots and put it on a burp? And he said, I don't know. We moved before I found right. out and, and, and we're we not in touch with them. When we heard the phrase <laughs> breast milk mozzarella, which, by the way, is a great name for a band. Uh, and that would be a jam. But Harley Cohen would go to see that band. Breast milk mozzarella and, yeah. and, and their it's opening hard. act. And their opening act is foreskin bacon. <laughs> so anyway, that that was peak synagogue. Like you wonder why do I go to synagogue? It, it was worth it you if only for that story. So I see your breast milk mozzarella and and I raise you bagels. You, you're not gonna be able to raise me. I'm just gonna say right now. Yeah, I don't, probably not. Let's be frank. But go but, ahead. Uh it's it's a testament, I think, to living uh to a life well lived. When it's Wednesday at like 10 p.m. and you get an email from from a friend and a former, I believe, guest on the show, right? Sarah Pulliam Bailey. Yeah, Sarah Bailey uh, of who, the Washington Post. Of the Washington Post. Yep. Great, great uh, columnist. Yep. Uh, saying, uh, have you heard the news about the bagels? Uh, now, of course, she knew precisely who to ask because, in fact, I've spent a lot of that day learning about the bagels. And, and this is what happened to those three of our listeners who may still not be aware of this. Uh, some gentleman in the great city of St. Louis posted a photo of a, of a box of bagels from Panera. So, you know, bagels-ish, bagel-ish bagels, uh, sliced not horizontally as one would, but vertically as you would slice bread. Which, of course, uh, our culture being what it is, uh, was all the news everyone in in my circle talked about. So it's literally had gone through a bread slicer, so that there were ton- like yes. a bunch of tiny pieces. Correct, like, like slices of, of like Wonder Bread. Uh, the, gr- and- the best thing since. <laughs> <laughs> Lordy, and and so Sarah wanted to know would I would I kindly opine about this important development in human affairs? She wanted a hot take. She wanted a hot take. So you know. Um, 
I, I said to Sarah, like, this is the piece I was born to write because, you know, people were so upset, like, oh, you have the gall to slice bagels. It's like they culturally misappropriated the bagel. That's right. These Gentiles in St. Louis at Panera, which, by the way, is what Ellie wants to name her first son. Panera. I Panera. She thinks, she's like, I'm going to name my children Death, Sludge, and the boy will be Panera. <laughs> Uh, true story. Oh but sludge these, and Panera. These Gentiles at Panera had the gall to slice it vertically. To which I say, amen and hallelujah. The bagel, as I've opined once or twice or 138 times before on the show and in the new best-selling book you should totally get right now, The 100 Most Jewish Foods, um, bagels are the least Jewish food in the world. They, they were something we brought with us from the old country. And guess what? Once you could get them at Panera, <laughs> they're no longer ours. And so I welcome anything that makes them interesting again. This is, this is a food stuff you can now get at every airport in America. You know, you have, you have 20, I, I wrote in the piece, you have 22 Einstein bagel outfits in Utah, which is more than there are Jews in Utah. So it's a goisha food now. I think it should be sliced any which way. I wrote in the piece, I think it should be consumed with mayonnaise and cold cuts. <laughs> it should be turned into a blooming onion. It Hallelujah. should be julienne. It should be. <laughs> so that's a radical take is that it's, it's become, it's, okay. it's all okay. Anything to make, bagel has really become the most boring goisha food stuff ever. Anything that makes it interesting and new again is welcome. I love when you, your take just really surprises me. <laughs> You're you just know. full of surprises. What's up with you, Stephanie? Butnick? I also have food news um, <laughs> because I guess we're Jews. But so Mark is like, what is wrong with you people? You mentioned the Hunter West Jewish Foods book, and it actually stemmed from an online project that we had done in 2018, which was so we had prepared all hundred foods, put them on a table, photographed them at the same time, and then released it as a web feature where you could spin the table and click on the foods. Very cool web feature. It's so cool, in fact, that it was nominated for a James Beard Award for innovative storytelling. And the James Beard Awards are like the Oscars of the food world. So when do we find out if we win it? So I will be at the dinner. It's the, the second Friday of Passover, April 26th. Yeah, but you're being very modest. You are nominated for a James yes, Beard I Award. Yes, I am. You, Stephanie Taylor Butnick. <laughs> are a James Beard Award nominee. Oh yeah, my it's amazing. Um, me, Alana, and Gabrielle Gershenson, who obviously was on the podcast for the food episode, um, we put together this project, and we are nominated, and it's really exciting. Oh, my God. I just am learning about this this and very second. And we're up against two other stories. Doesn't so. Michael Twitty win every James Beard well, Award, he's, though? Yeah, he's in the food the, the food pathways or foodways. So, okay. yeah, who, who we're not you, going up against him, luckily. Who are you up against? We are up against a Washington Post feature about what's what's in a food truck. It's like this very cool interactive fake, thing. Fake It's news. like a video of them putting together Don't food Truck. And then this Garbage. cool story from Eater that's called In Search of Water Boiled Fish. Nope, and that's it. sort of like another interactive storytelling. Now, here's the thing. A, I think you're going to win. B, if you don't win, it's you're anti-Semitism. Gonna, if you're, that's right. I was just going to say, if you don't win, you're going to be really gracious about it. And I'm going to have to be the, the ADL oh. for you and just call out anti-Semitism. I'm... I would look. It would be amazing to win. We cooked a hundred fucking foods. It's still really. <laughs> we I mean, cooked one hundred items. I don't think people realize I, that we cooked a yeah. hundred dishes. My favorite moment of of this great uh, revelatory week of of you being nominated is Penn's tweet. It's like great when you ask your uh, James Beard Award nominated wife, like, "Where are we going for dinner?" And she's like, "I don't know." <laughs> Do you feel an added pressure now? No. This is You're such like a, a this food is, influencer. I'm not a food you are a food influencer. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. What are we doing for lunch? Slice bagel, slice the wrong way. That's right. <laughs> so, I think uh, the only there is no news that could top that. But no, there's. But not. if anyone is more important in America right now than uh, Stephanie Butnick, it is uh, 
Pete Buttigieg, whom we are calling Pete Booty Judge. Booty Judge. Booty Judge. Liel and I were talking a little bit about this while Stephanie was late for the taping. I was late. And um, I got lost in my apartment. We were just talking about how like couldn't find the exit. One of the one of the few things that unites me and Liel right now is we both we're both on Team Booty Judge. The guy, he, I hadn't even checked in until this week, and then I check in, and I discover that he is a tzaddik, a lamed vavnik, probably moshiach. We think he oh. may be doing a page a day of Talmud. Is he he's Jewish? Doing no, he's not Jewish. He's, he's Mark, Mark's ready to convert something him. Christian from South Bend, Indiana, who talks about his faith Ooh, and his, his husband faith. and his veteran service. And he's like, he's actually super goyish. He's probably an Eagle Scout. That's how goyish he is. Now I'm going to get mail from the Jewish Boy Scouts. I'm sorry. I'm going to st- I'm going to stand on that. Like he is he is all of that stuff and more. He's, he's a Rotarian and a lion and a moose and an elk <laughs> and all of those things that I would never join. And I so an badly. Otter. He's an otter. He's a beaver. I. <laughs> so badly want this guy to be president. Um, so here- I just don't like making fun of his name. As a fellow bootnik, um, oh. I, I just think, I think we should be, I also have no idea how to say his name, so I don't want to even try it. Buttigieg. Buttigieg. He yeah. claimed it's boot edge edge. But boot edge edge. But the emphasis on the boot, it's boot edge edge. We're going with Buttigieg. booty judge. Booty judge. Here's the no, thing. No, I don't like that. We can't make fun of people's names. We're taking creative license. Okay, fine. Liberties here. We're, um, and this is with love. Clear, really, it is. I mean- Anyway, uh, we are going. We're we're all on Team Booty Judge here. We, that's not saying we're going to vote for him or give him money, but we're on his team. I mean, the stories that you hear are just so fantastic. He met someone at a party, and that someone had a friend, and that friend was Norwegian. And at which point, Booty Judge just starts speaking fluent Norwegian, and the person's like, "How do you know this relatively esoteric Icelandic language?" Or, or uh, yeah, uh, relatively Norwegian esoteric. is not an Icelandic. No, uh, what I meant <laughs> Scandinavian. Scandinavian language. How do you know this relatively esoteric Scandinavian language? And he said, "Oh, there's a novel I really wanted to read, so I taught myself." I was yeah. like, "Yep, that, nope, that, like, that guy. Like, there's that guy's no good. doubt he's in a Tuesday night Mishnah group. I oh, mean, for he's, sure. he's absolutely. He's Sunday mornings. He's doing his his Rashi. Tuesday, it's like, look out, Cory Booker. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, that's a good sieg to uh, the news of the Jews. Cory Booker, not Jewish, in fact, gave a an answer at some town hall about how central Christ is to his life, which, by the way, I don't believe. No. I actually don't think that Christ is central to Cory Booker's life. Um, Keep Christ and Cory. I, I think like I think he's probably a fairly agnostic, liberal, lapsed Christian who doesn't think about Christ But do you all. think you can't be a lapsed Christian and be president? Like, do you think that is like he's— Yeah, I think, I think he doesn't want to say what he actually is, what most of the candidates probably are, which is a sec- cultural, secular, agnostic— or atheist, which, heathens, which is Panera Christians, right? They're Panera Christians, and they they slice their Jesus vertically. And but he pivoted uh, on Wednesday night from his answer about how central Christ is to his life uh, to saying, you know, by the way, uh, can I quote some Hebrew to you? Uh, and he said, I studied Torah too. There's a song sung during the the high holidays, and here let's let's listen to it. Can I quote some Hebrew to you? Because I studied the Torah too. There's a, there's a song sung during the high holidays. May my house be a house of prayer for many nations. Jewish mamalas across the country swooned, opened up their Google Chrome browsers and gave $18 oh, to Corey Booker. That was not where I thought you were going, so I'm glad <laughs> it went there. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. 
Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Our first Jewish guest this week is Lori Gottlieb. She's a psychotherapist, a New York Times bestselling author, and the Dear Therapist columnist for The Atlantic. Her latest book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is out this week. Welcome, Lori. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So the book is about both your your work as a psychotherapist and also your, your own personal therapy journey um, and meeting with a therapist yourself. I'm so curious, why write a book about both of those things? Right. So there are two big themes to the book. And one is that we grow in connection with others. And the other is that we're more the same than we are different. And so I felt like if I was going to be writing about my patients, and they were going to be very vulnerable, that I wanted to not be the expert up on high, but I wanted to be, I wanted to show my humanity. Because I think that that helps people feel less isolated. And I think that it starts opening up these conversations around our emotional health. This is an amazing book. Uh, and it seems to require to have required this tremendous amount of vulnerability, really, to kind of like open up about this. Was there a point while working in which you just stopped and said, I, I, I can't share this? My oh. patients are going to read it. My mother's going to read right, it. Because <laughs> My son will read it one day. Right. I mean, right. Um, um, you talk, you follow several patients through a year or so of doing therapy, doing work with them. And then you also take us through this journey of the therapy you're in with your doctor, whom you call Wendell. And yeah, all of it seems like a violation of everyone involved. <laughs> and yet you obviously changed enough identities and did enough work around them that people, but nevertheless, your patients could read this, right? Right, right. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think with my patients, first of all, just to, you know, uh, I lay everybody's fears. Um, I don't just randomly write about patients. Um, so my patient, I have permission to write about the patients in the book. Um, but in terms of me, it's the most vulnerable I've ever been in a book. And I and that the bar is high there because I've written a lot about myself over the years as a journalist and, and author in other books. And so, um, you know, I think there were times when I felt like um, – I wasn't, it would be fraudulent if I didn't really expose myself in the same way. And I don't mean expose myself in some kind of titillating way. Like with the patients, I think, you know, everybody is just, we're just humans kind of struggling in the world. And we're dealing with the problems of modern life and the, the problems that have, that are age old of, you know, how do I love and be loved? How do I deal with um, regret? What can I change? What can't I change? How do I change? Um, and I think that you have to be really honest with the reader if you're going to grapple with those questions. See, I love this book for the same reasons that I've always kind of felt repelled by therapy. This seems to be something, and you refer to it actually very candidly, and I think it's a part of the funniest parts of the book. It's like a game, right? When you go to a therapist, you never go to a dentist and say, oh, I bet now he's going to extract molar 3D or whatever it is that like in your mouth. You don't try to second guess like what your dentist is doing. You just sit there and like take the treatment. But with a therapist, you're always like, why are they quiet? Are they judging me? Are they listening? Are they trying to get me to do something? It's like kind of like a therapeutic, you know, dance. And 
this book kind of seems to lay it all bare. It's almost like a magician tell-all of how therapy works. Right. See, I, most therapists, we don't want to be considered the wizard, right? And we. So I think that what I want to do in this book, too, is demystify the process of therapy. I think so many people don't get help because they think therapy is exactly what you just said. And that, that sounds really anxiety-provoking. Yeah, that's why I've yeah. never gone to therapy. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, so hopefully that's not what people are doing in therapy. We're very transparent. And I think that that's important because it's really this rich emotional um, experience in therapy. And we're not trying to hide anything from our patients. Uh, we're just being very real with our patients. Of course, there are times when we're not saying something. So for example, I might think something that I want to say, but I know it's too early to say, and I'm going to hold that and kind of tag that in my mind for when I think you might be ready to hear it. But it's not that we're being withholding or that we're playing some kind of game. I'm Super pro therapy. I think it's fine. I've been in therapy at various points, so I'm not right now. Liel's one of those people just like he's allergic to the idea. But I, I was think, just raised this way. I think he should get some therapy. Do you yeah. think everyone should get some therapy? I don't think everyone should, but I think that it's a really important uh, way of discovering things about yourself that you would not otherwise discover. And the reason that that's important, because it's not some kind of navel-gazing activity, the reason that's important is because the way we relate to ourselves impacts the way we relate to others. So a lot of people have some kind of relational struggle going on in their lives, and they, they kind of are shooting themselves in the foot, and they, they repeat a pattern over and over, and it, it causes a lot of distress. And so what can they do to see themselves more clearly? A therapist will hold up a mirror to people and help them see something that was a blind spot. And friends and family won't tell you about this, or if they do, it'll come off as a criticism. You know, people have an agenda. I want I want to tell you this thing about yourself so that you can make my life easier, right? A therapist doesn't have that agenda. I love therapy. I love my therapist deeply. But reading this book, I realized I actually don't know anything about her. I found her wedding announcement when I Googled her way back to find her address <laughs> to send her the check. But um, what this book unpacks so interestingly is like the therapists have inner lives too. And this person who is, is taking on all your... Almost like they're people. Yes, they're people. And, the idea that, and of course, I you know, from The Sopranos, I know that therapists see therapists. I think we all sort of understand that. But I'm so curious about the way in which you peel back the layer of the therapist as human. And was that something that was important to you to do? It, it was. Um, I always say to people that, you know, my, my greatest credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race, that without my humanity, I wouldn't be able to help people. And so, yes, we're people. And I think sometimes, you know, even though that sounds obvious, there's a chapter in the book called Embarrassing Public Encounters, which is when people encounter us out in the world. And it's almost like when you're in first grade and you run into your teacher right. at Best Buy and she's like with her family and she's wearing <laughs> cutoff shorts no and you're one, like, no one's Mrs. Happy to see Jones, right. I saw <laughs> what my, are you doing? I saw my pediatrician at Stop and Shop with her like trying to wrangle her kids. And of course, you want to think of your pediatrician as just omnicompetent with children at all times. And it was, I've, I still haven't recovered. <laughs> right, right. Well, there's there's an incident that I talk about in the book where a colleague of mine who's a very well-respected child psychologist was in the bakery as her child was yelling, you're the worst mom ever <laughs> at her six-year-old patient and her mother happened to be there. Um, you know, but yes, we're, we're just people. Um, but I also think that it's important for people to realize that that's a great tool for us, that because I have lived my life, I can understand somebody else's life, even if our life experiences are different. But with Google, as you point out at length in the book, now, even if you wanted to 
sort of hold back the self-disclosure, we all go Google our therapists, you included, and you get Googled. You Google that you Google your therapist, your patients Google you. Is that I was unclear if you thought that was really problematic. Like well, it, it, it's a problem in the relationship that 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 technology is introduced, I think. Well, yeah. So I ended up Googling my therapist and you know, everything that patients do with me, I ended up doing with my therapist too. I wanted him to like me. If I saw someone in the waiting room after, I wondered if her sessions were more interesting than mine. I wondered why she was there. And I Googled my therapist, as my patients do with me. Um, and what I found out was that his father had died at a relatively young age of a sudden heart attack. And I had been talking in session about my close relationship with my father in his 80s and how I was so grateful that I had this time with him. And all of a sudden, I felt this sinking feeling as if I had somehow caused him pain, caused my therapist pain. It, I somehow rubbed it in that, you know, I was having this great experience with my father, now knowing that he didn't get to have that experience with his father. And like many of my patients, I hid the fact that I had Google stalked him because who wants to admit to that? And I had a lot of shame around that. Um, and I was really worried that I would slip up. And so I avoided talking about my father in the same way in therapy. And finally, I realized this is not helpful and I fessed up and all the air returned to the room. So let me let me ask this apropos how we talk about things in a in a useful way versus a destructive way. One of the greatest kind of piece pieces of advice uh, in in the book of which there are many was that there are two different ways to be sympathetic, right? Someone comes to you and say my boyfriend broke up with me, which is a big theme in this book. Uh, there are two ways to respond to that, right? One's like the idiot way and one's the wise way. Right. Tell so, us about those. Right. So I talk about the two kinds of compassion in the book, idiot compassion and wise compassion. And idiot I'm compassion- I'm really good at idiot compassion. Right. That's well, all I do. <laughs> but idiot compassion is what our friends and family do, which is they don't want to rock the boat and they want to be supportive of you. And so if you say, you know- my boyfriend's a jerk or my boss is a jerk or my friend did this thing to me, they'll say, yeah, that was terrible. You're right. And, you know, they'll they'll completely take your side without even questioning what went on on the other side. Which feels great. Which in the short term, that's idiot compassion, yeah. right? Um, the problem is you'll just keep repeating the pattern over and over. It's not very helpful. Your honesty would be more helpful, but they might not be able to hear it. But really, can like your best friend be honest with you? I mean, can, I you, hear it, can you hear it from them? It depends on how you deliver that. I think that's one thing that therapists are very skilled at is how can we help you see something about your role in a situation where you don't feel criticized or blamed, but it actually feels liberating to say, oh, I have some choices. I'm not trapped by this situation. Um, and so we might take another, we might give you another perspective or offer you the opportunity to look at a different perspective. And that can be really eye-opening. And that's what we call wise compassion. We'll give you a compassionate truth bomb. You did a great interview um, with Terry Gross on NPR's Fresh Air, and you said, first of all, you got Terry Gross to, to to talk about her own therapy experience, and she loves therapy. And I just was thinking, Terry Gross, it must be so nice to just talk about you and not have to ask anyone the questions. <laughs> that was right, the, be the best part of the interview was when Terry Gross told me about her therapy experience. Terry Gross in therapy must be like a beast. <laughs> be like, shut up. I mean, she's you talk just about me. This is a good moment to say she's been weirdly out there more lately. Like she did that turn on This Is Us. Like, why is Terry, oh, Terry Gross? I who was, loved that. I'm a 
obsessed with This Is Us. And to see so Terry Gross on that show was a thrill. I feel like she's sort of, I mean, she's probably in her 60s. She's not like at the end, but you know, she's stepping back a little from fresh air. She's giving Dave Davies a little more airtime. <laughs> and I feel like she's sort of transitioning to some new space in her life where she's going to be like, own her celebrity. Well, a she's going to be in the new in the new Avengers movie. She's yeah. very humble. She started the interview before we started. She said, "Hi, Lori. I'm my name is Terry Gross, and I have a show called Fresh Air, <laughs> and we we're an interview show." And I said, "Terry, I know that's a bit much. <laughs> to be honest, that's you're like Terry. I'm a therapist. I know right. from Fresh Air. That's a bit much, Terry. So, so the reason I, I thought it was I thought it was a sign of her humility, and I was very impressed. Well, that's idiot." The, compassionate. Oh, <laughs> the, reason I, the, the, the part that I struck Lord. me when I was listening to it was you you, you described Wendell, your therapist. You want to know if he likes you. And he yes. basically says, as you say, you have a good neshama. Like, I like your neshama. Right. Which your I, soul. And I was like, did I just hear what I th- think I hear? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of Yiddish going on in that room. Is there, Wendell there Jewish? There really is. Wendell's Jewish. Yes. Of course he is. I mean, is that redundant? He's a therapist no, I was in Los like, Angeles. I, didn't know. I read Wendell. I was like, I don't know. But then I was like, he clearly is. So I, I want to bring this. Or he's this, just LA. You know, I want to, I want to like Jew this up more than Terry Gross would, which is like, she's are Jewish. There, no, no, I know. But are there themes you see like among Jewish patients? Are there like, are there, and there are, are, are there actually. Gentile problems and Jewish problems? I think there are human problems. Um, but I think that different cultures, have different kinds of issues that that are more common to them. And I think with Jewish patients, there tends to be a lot around achievement and am I good enough? Um, am I meeting my parents' expectations? Um, I'm doing something different from what was expected of me. I don't know how I feel about that. I do know how my parents feel about that. And what, what would the goyim obsess over? Um... I think there's a Am more... Am I benching enough weight this week? <laughs> I... Uh, you know, I, I think there, there are more kind of questions around um, less what their parents think of them and more about struggles they're having in the world. There's a big parental achievement aspect to the, to the Jewish patients, I think, in different ways, especially around sort of gender, too. I think a lot of women um, feel like maybe they're doing something different from what their mothers would like them to be doing. There are questions about should they be married? Um, should they have children by a certain age? Even in today's world, it's interesting how that still persists. And so are those issues sort of like holding us back developmentally, do you think, emotionally? Well, I think that there's a a pull toward wanting to have a foot in tradition, right? And I think community is a big thing also for for Jewish patients, that they they like the strong sense of community, but what the community might be asking of them might be different from what they want for themselves. So there's a line in this book that really upset me because I don't believe it's true. And it goes something like this. Um, there's something likable in every person. Mm-hmm. Now you have to say that because you're a therapist. People... I don't have to say that. Really? Um, when, Do you when, believe we, it? when you start off, when you start off with with John, the the you know the sort of narcissistic, right. entitled Hollywood producer who insults me, he calls me. First, he says that I'll be like his mistress, and he hands me a wad of cash. He doesn't want his wife to know that he's in therapy. But then he says, no, actually, you're not the type of woman I would pick as a mistress. More like my hooker. Yeah. And then he's like, isn't that funny? He was pretty dislikable. <laughs> he was pretty dislikable, right? Um, of course, we we come to, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but we come to 
you know, love this guy and understand that the way people behave is really a way of coping. It's their way of protecting themselves. So people that you don't like in the world, they're just they're acting in that way because it's protective for them. John was somebody who was terrified of having people really see him and get close to him, even though he was this very, very successful guy out in the world and seemed very at ease socially. Um, he was terrified of, of people getting close to him, and we find out why later. So my supervisor had said, there's something likable in everyone. It's your job to find it. And I thought, yeah, well, not everyone. I mean, <laughs> there's not going to be something likable in everyone. But but it was true if they let me see them. If they are keeping me at arm's length, I'm not going to find the things that are likable. And it's funny because I think the things that we hide from other people are the things that actually will make us most likable to them. Those are the things that will draw us toward them. But people spend so much energy trying to hide the truth of who they are from other people for fear that they won't be liked. I have a somewhat odd question. I sometimes think about the fact that therapy, psychotherapy as part of culture is really a century old about exactly. And then if you go back, you know, to Victorian times and certainly before, go back to the 1700s, 1600s, there was no psychotherapy. It didn't exist. The closest approximation was you got to confess to your priest periodically if a priest happened to pass through your village or whatever. But people didn't have practices of self-disclosure at all. Um, were they... What was society like when nobody had it? Was it better because people didn't have the expectations of self-knowledge or self-disclosure and so they were happier within the expectations that they had? Or was were there just was there just a lot more misery? Was there a baseline level of more people with more relational problems that then this industry came along that needed to be invented? Why can't it be both? To solve them. I'm I, very miserable. I'm going to go to war on Croatia as a result. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm just <laughs> wondering, like, this is brand. It's as if we invented marriage 100 years. Here's this institution in sort of certainly middle class Western culture that simply didn't exist. So, like, what did you do in 1800 if you were having relational difficulties? Just sublimate them, live with them? In 1800, we didn't live as long, first of all. So, you know, the lifespan was what back then, right? Middle age now. Um, So I think that... At 15, you're like, half my life is over? Exactly, exactly. But I think also you were married by then. You know, you were a parent by then. Um, it was very different. I think today we have so such different lives from then. We have, um, you know, and, and we care a lot about, we have so much freedom in terms of our relationships that they didn't have then. So we care a lot about the quality of our relationships because we have choices about them. How do you see this profession changing now that books like yours and TV shows like Sopranos and In Treatment have made this, you know, process so visible to people? You know, th- so this book is is being made into a TV show, um, and one of the things I really want to do is portray therapists as just normal people. I think when you see therapists in media, TV, film, um, there are kind of these two tropes. There's the the very cold, distant, removed person who's sort of maybe paying attention. And then there's the very competent therapist in the room, but the train wreck, the, right. the hot mess outside of the room. And neither of those reflects any of the therapists that I know. Um, and I think that making a TV show about a person who happens to be a therapist as opposed to let's do a show about a therapist, but here's a person and she happens to be a therapist. And I think that's very humanizing. And I hope that's what we can do uh, with the TV version of maybe you should talk to someone. But how do you think this this uh, this new way of looking at you guys as people, which is weird, uh, is going to change the kind of the whole process, the experience? I think that I think that it'll be really positive for 
um, helping people to feel less alone in the world. One of the things that I see so much in the therapy room is that no matter what people come in with, there's this sense of underlying loneliness. So they can have lots of friends and they can have family and they can have, you know, Twitter followers, Twitter followers. But I don't even mean that. They can have people in real life who are in their lives. But because we don't really connect in the same way, um, people are lonely and they're seeking connection. They're seeking something else. And because they don't have those connections, often they hide whatever depression, anxiety, grief, whatever normal emotional struggles that people are going through, they don't really share them in the same way. And therapy is one of the few places where they feel like they can do that. So many people will say, especially men, men will say, I've never told anyone this before. And what's interesting about that is the thing that then they'll then reveal is so mild to me. It's like, it's like, that's what you've been hiding. <laughs> you know, like that was so mild, but I don't say that. Um, but, you know, women will say, like, the only person I told was my sister. Or the only person I told was my best friend. And there's so much shame around these secrets that we're keeping. Is it shame or is it just the fact that these support structures that we once had, you know, religious communities, large extended families are just gone now? Well, I think that's part of it is that because these support structures are gone that we don't we don't get to talk a lot with other people about them. And so we feel like nobody else is experiencing this and therefore we feel shame. We feel like something is wrong with me. Or also, sometimes people feel like my problem isn't that important because, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I've been feeling sad for the last couple of months. And yeah, I cry sometimes when I don't even know why. But, you know, I have a roof over my head and hashtag first world problems. And, you know, look at what's happening to all these other people in the world. And so my problems really, you right. know, don't merit any airtime. And I think that's really dangerous because the more we minimize our problems, we kind of stuff them down, but the feelings don't go away just because you want them to go away or they're inconvenient. And so what happens is they get bigger. And at a certain point, um, you know, it's like if you have chest pain and you don't go to the doctor and then, you know, you wait until you have this massive coronary. People are going to have the emotional massive coronary if they don't get their, their emotional chest pain checked out. Liel, I don't want you to have your emotional coronary. We don't have any kind of coronary. I think you you should go to therapy. (laughs) Yeah. Lori Gottlieb, thank you so much. The book is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone and our listeners, maybe you should buy it. Maybe you should (laughs) buy it. Last night, I wanted to watch some more TV with my wife and she said, I'm sorry, I have to go keep reading Lori Gottlieb's book. So she left me there on the sofa to watch Shrill by myself while she went to, I'd already read your book. I put it on her pile and I've lost her for a few days. Well, that is, I'm sorry for you, but that is the highest compliment. And uh, thank you to your wife. And thank you guys for uh, talking with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. 
We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. So, as mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're flying to Cleveland. I meet this guy on an airplane. I judge from his hat that he's a deadhead. I judge from his overall vibe and the fact that he was schmoozing with Hasidim at the airport gate that he's a Jew. And I thought to myself, I got to get to know this guy. And after an extraordinary airplane conversation, I said, we got to get together for breakfast tomorrow. And the next day in Cleveland, we went to Corky and Lenny's Deli. And this guy broke it down for me, why there are so many Jewish deadheads, how he returned to Jewish practice through an outreach organization, uh, what matters to him, spiritual path, everything. He just, he just was one of these profound souls that you expect to meet when you go to um, Cleveland. So this is me a couple months back talking at Corky and Lenny's Deli in Cleveland with Harley Cohen. How many dead shows have you seen in a year, in the last 10 years, in your lifetime? I started in 1972 in St. Louis, was my first show. I was uh, 18. I went to visit Washington University uh, to see if I liked the school, and uh, I knew some people there, and uh, they immediately handed me something to take, and we went to Grateful Dead show, and I decided the next day that that's where I wanted to go to school. It was a spiritual experience for me. It still is. Um, I didn't take my kids until they were probably 14. They were deadheads since they were two. They both loved it the instant, the moment they heard it. And we share that uh, together in, on every level. Uh, it's spiritual for all of us. My whole family, my sister, her family, my nieces and nephews were, it's a big family event for us. This is like these families where one person gets from, gets very religious, and before you know it, not just their kids, but their parents, their sisters, their brothers, like everyone around you became a deadhead. Uh, I don't know if it's an infectious thing or not. Um, I truly believe that we, we all have an antenna that is capable of listening, uh, that, that some people just, they just don't hear it. I, I mean, you know, I mean, we look at each at each other during shows and we go, did you listen to that? I mean, you you know, you go to a, I've been to 300 plus shows and, and to be that excited. And it's so interesting. You know, I grew up at this amazingly great conservadox, like Orthodox synagogue in, in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Fantastic place. And I went to shul as a child on the weekends, on Saturday, on Shabbos, even though my parents didn't go. I'd walk. I'd walk three miles, literally, when I was 10 years old. And my father worked as an accountant 
His office was on the way. So I'd stop in, say hello, and I'd leave Shul and go to my best friend's house. And I brought a change of clothes with me every time. And we'd play basketball all day, you know, sports all day, every day, Saturday. And in Shul was a blast. I loved it. The, the group of friends that I had there was different than my social friends. So we had, like, fun. But I was like every other uh, child in, in, those, in, a, in, a, in a typical uh, Jewish education that's not orthodox. Um, you know, you goof around. And so you don't really learn anything. So my belief in Judaism was unquestioned. However, it wasn't deep because I didn't learn anything. I just believed. Didn't know that I believed. I just did. When I went to college and I was in pre-med, um, I went through a very serious crisis. I lost my faith uh, because, uh, you know, that's pretty much what they teach in college. Uh, they start with uh, algae, and you end up with a human being. And uh, it's pretty hard to argue when it's science. So um, I, I ended up in a rather serious crisis, literally a life crisis, that I went through. And after that, when I moved to Cleveland, I started a journey of refinding my Judaism. Um, I married an amazing Jewish woman, and uh, our journey started with a conservative temple that my wife belonged to, which I didn't like at all. But I went there. Every week, I took her grandmother there. Once I started going 30-some years ago, I just kept going. Then we started with Aish, and Aish had a very immediate impact on me. Aish Torah, Fire of the Torah, is, it's an outreach group, not unlike Chabad, but, but different. I actually don't know much about it. Aish is really all Balchuvas, which means that they weren't observant Jews who became observant, and so they're outreaching to other uh, secular Jews. Chabad is not. Chabad is FFB for the most part. They're from, from birth, and so there's a much deeper, it goes, the history and the, you know, the beliefs are much stronger. Um, but the, the idea is the same, which is that every Jew is a Jew. And that's a very important concept. And so Chabad is an amazing organization. So I'm involved with both and uh, with everything Jewish because it's so rich. The crisis that I went through, it was severe. Drugs, depression, the whole schmear. It was, uh, it was kind of a lost soul. I didn't, I, I didn't seem to have a, uh, there, there was nothing inside. I, I felt very empty. Didn't know why, though. It wasn't that I realized what it was. You know, I, like many other Jews in those times, I started looking at other solutions. Like, why am I feeling this way? And then I studied Alan Watts and read everything. I read it all. Oh, philosophy. Oh, yeah, we were staying up, tripping all night, uh, talking, uh, you know, uh, philosophy is very intense. Looking for those uh, important solutions. And didn't really find them, but what I did do was I went on the mend, and uh, because my life was more important than, at that time, uh, my career, um, but anyway, um, so this crisis, which I, is so important because what I, real, what I learned from Aish and from Chabad is really being Jewish is not about accepting Judaism. It's about asking questions. And really finding your faith in this life is about seeking it your, your own path. 
ask, by asking your own question. It, you know, the difference between Judaism and Christianity is very simply, Christianity tells you this is what you must believe. That's it. Or you're not a Christian. You have to sign on the dotted line. In Ju Judaism, you are a Jew, whether you believe in it or not, because you have a Jewish soul. But to understand and believe in Judaism, you have to ask, you, ha you have to learn about it, because you can't just say, I'm a Jew or I'm not a Jew. You have to ask the right questions. And if you ask the right questions, you'll find that it's a very, very long, arduous, difficult path to really understanding what, what is Judaism. So um, the thing that happened with Aisha Torah when the first class, you know, it was like my wife set up the class. Of course, you know, this didn't sound interesting or fun or anything. And then on the first class, we talked about moral dilemmas. This, this completely blew my mind. And most importantly, what came out of that class was Anything you do in life is about taking baby steps. You see, we all believe, because of the society we, we live in, that we have to get to the finish line now. You have to go from zero to 100 in 4.1 seconds. And that's not really what life is all about. Life is about the journey. You take baby steps. You don't have to be all or nothing. And the thing that's beautiful about an organization like Aish or Chabad is, they don't judge you where you are on the 10-yard line or the 50-yard line. You're not judged. And you don't judge yourself. Everything you do is baby steps. Learning how to be in a marriage or raise children, it's all baby steps. You can't expect yourself to be at the finish line on day one. Apply that to anything in your life. Your career, um, helping people who, who need help, um, People who are going through severe crises, um, helping them get through it. All those things, if you can teach them that it's all about baby steps, you take one step at a time. That was the secret for me. And as soon as I realized that, I, I said, well, my first step is I'm going to take my kids to Israel next year. And I did that. You know, that was uh, life changing because I had all, never been. I volunteered to go during the uh, Yom Kippur or Six Day War or... Yom Kippur War in 73, when I, my first day of college, that's when the war started, and I went to volunteer and uh, didn't end up going, but never went to Israel. I was afraid to go because I thought I'd never come home. And then I went, and it was uh, the greatest, greatest place to be on earth, you know. So back to the question of how you how you figure out your own observance level. What sort of deal have you made with yourself about what you want your so practice to look like? My my wife and I, we do it together. Each step we take, you know, we decided like five, six years ago that we were going to be kosher in the house. That's a tough one. Our kids, you know, they, they didn't understand it. Um, now they do, and they, you know, it takes time. It's like everything else. And, you know, you can't be too old to want to improve yourself. Judaism is all about improving yourself. Being able to say, here's me, what's wrong, what things can I fix, then try to fix it and try to make it better. That doesn't mean that everybody needs to be kosher. We, Gail, my wife and I, think that that's important for our souls, so we know it's hard, so that's why we do it in steps. Our next step may be outside the house. 
you know, we'll see. A year ago is when I started. I made a commitment to put on tefillin every single day, and I do that. Has that changed your life in any way? Everything has an effect. Everything has its place in your life. You know, I'd probably go to shul every day if I had time. Um, and I, you know, when I'm retired, I mean, that would be a dream of mine. You know, I'd just get up and go have a little breakfast and go to shul, you know, and then go about your business, you know, whatever it is you want to do when you retire. Maybe even work, but right for now, I can't. So, you know, at home, I in 15 minutes, I can do my morning prayers and, and put on tefillin. It, it, tefillin for me, it's like this. Um, when you plug in a um, electric outlet, something, a device into an electric outlet, what you're doing is you're completing a circuit. The electricity then completes a circuit. And for me, that's what tefillin are. They're, they're connecting the circuit between your hand and your soul. It connects a circuit, right? It says, okay, hand, do something good with what your soul wants you to do. You know, remind yourself that that's what, what it is. Shabbos is the is the thing that makes the difference between an animal and a and a and a soul, a human. That's what Shabbos is. Why? See, an animal has to eat seven days a week. If you're a wild animal, you have to work looking for food seven days a week. You don't have a choice. On Shabbat, you say consciously, today I'm not going to worry about money and work. I'm a human, I can make that choice. I have the ability to make that choice. The reason, I love other music. I like other music, of course, but nothing is as interesting, nothing. I can't think of another genre that, I mean, Incredible, you know, I, it's like wine, right? If you gave somebody who's never drank wine a, you know, $6,000 bottle of wine and said, here, taste this, they'd go, eh, eh, eh. You know, it's all of the history that went into that wine that you're tasting. And it's the same when you go to the dead, when you hear a song played differently than you've ever heard before. All of the times you've heard it before are part of it because you've heard it so many times. With The Grateful Dead, of course, there are things we always like to hear, but what makes it fascinating and interesting and magical is that they can take any one of their songs, and if they're playing it well, it's the best you've ever heard. You know, um, my friends and my family all know that every time I go to a show, they all know this. This is my saying. It's going to be on my tombstone, and it's going to say, best show ever. It's what I say at every show. The thing that's amazing, I mean, I, I don't know how to explain it to you. Like, I hear stuff today that I've never heard before, and I go, oh, my gosh. How in the world did they do that? How did they play that song so many times and then come up with that? I mean, it was remarkable. So that's the physical part, the work ethic. And then you go another layer deep, you know? And the next layer deep is uh, their talent and the art of it. 
and then their unselfishness, the unselfishness of their ego. And then you go deeper, and then there's the involvement of the crowd, and then the spiritual level. I mean, the Grateful Dead works on so many levels. How does that relate to Judaism? Well, Judaism is a way of life, right? When you go to temple, shul, and you pray, you move your body like this, back and forth. Why do you do that? Why, why do you move like this when you're praying? Did you ever ask that question? Well, here's what I could tell you. <clears throat> if you believe, as I do, that we are comprised of a physical body, which is an animal, and then a soul, which is a, call it a light of energy that it resides inside of each of us. Um, it takes like 165 muscles to stand perfectly straight, but you're never really still. And so you're always moving. So if there's a vibration to the universe, the universe is vibrating with something, spirituality. When you're moving, you're getting into that spiritual vibration. And when you dance to the Grateful Dead, it's the same thing. Have you ever seen really Jewish moments at a dead show? Like, you ever seen people getting together? It's like time to daven Mariv or something? Oh, absolutely. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've seen that, absolutely. Davening, yeah. Certain cities more than others. Pittsburgh, of course, for sure. Um, L.A., for sure. Um, New York. There used to be a bus that would travel around for years. We'd see it at all these shows we go to, you know, 10, 20 shows a year, called uh, Osesh, uh, Osesh Shalom. Big, huge bus, right? And on the side, it would be dressed like a Grateful Dead bus with, you know, dead bears and everything. And Osesh Shalom, you know, I mean. And it was, what, it was Haredi guys yeah, who would go it was, to dead you know, shows? Yeah, it was, you know, Osesh Shalom is peace, right? Be, peace, <laughs> peace. Sociologically, the Grateful Dead has such a Jewish, um, aside from the spirituality part of it, why? I mean, I, I, there's so many Jews who are deadheads. Why is that? I mean, we can, we can look into that, but I could give you my reasons, um, and I say it's the spirituality of it. Um, I think Jews, by definition, by default, seek spirituality. Now, most times or many times they don't find it in Judaism itself and they look elsewhere. And I don't mean religiously, they may look elsewhere um, secularly, like, like their jobs. You know, they may find that spirituality there or making money or to me, everybody should have some spirituality. I believe in balance. And if you're not finding it in Judaism, so be it, but you should find it somewhere. If you only believe in the void, um, I think that's, that's a problem. I, I, I'm not judging. I'm saying it's a problem for you. I think you, you're missing out. Uh, I think you don't, if you don't see it, um, you're, you're, you're cheating yourself. If you really, really want to know about Judaism, call me. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, that's the only thing. I, Harley I Cohen will talk to you about yeah. it. Yeah. 
Some of you may remember that a few weeks back, we started talking about how Liel has no middle name in English. Very said, and very true. If he's going to pass as an American, if he's going to assimilate, uh, he really needs to be Liel something Leibovitz. That's right. And so we threw it to you guys. What do you think his middle name should be? And you sent many, many answers. And and But how, how are we going to decide? We're in the throes of March Madness, even though it's April now. It's apparently still going on. Um, Duke Gloss, so I no longer pay attention. Just kidding. I never paid attention. But um, <laughs> we're doing basically like a bracket style tournament for people to vote on what Liel's middle name should be. So once you hear this episode... Go to our Facebook group, join it if you're not already in it, and you'll find a link to the first round of voting. And so basically, it's it's fashioned like a real tournament. So you have the first round is open until Sunday. So from Thursday to Sunday, you you vote on the first round. And then it like does all the tabulations. And I have to say, I recuse myself here. I have not looked at any of the suggestions. Oh, they're so good. I want to be impartial. This is is the real deal here. And then basically, after that, there's like a second round where we, you know... It's, it's just, we're drawing this and out. The second this round is, starts on Sunday. The right? second round starts on Sunday, and then it closes right before it's, our it's, Tuesday when we record. And then you know we'll, how they have like Elite Eight stuff like that. So yeah. the second round is the uh, the what the the Shawarma Seven. The Shawarma Seven. <laughs> well, we have we'll have the Sweet Sixteen on the next sh- week's episode that we can talk about. 16. And so we'll like we're gonna really it's you know I'm gonna vote. I'm only gonna vote once. I'll go on to Facebook as Sid, and I will vote. Yes, and so that's actually voter fraud. <laughs> <laughs> it's real, us liberals with our voter fraud. So join the Facebook group and you get to vote on Liel's middle name. I'm going to guess that a lot of these suggested names are uh, firearm related. Well, I think there's Uzi, but my favorite, <laughs> of course my favorite remains Liel, Liel, Leibowitz, Leibowitz. <laughs> so your middle name is actually just your full name. And is it hyphenated? Liel Leibowitz? Nope, just Liel, Liel, Leibowitz. Liel, Liel, Leibowitz. That's one way that you can contribute and 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 add to um, add to the our mojo. A couple more ways. Uh, go rate us on iTunes. We haven't talked about that in a while, but going and giving us a good rating with a good write-up does kick us higher in various mysterious... Uh, Algorithmic. Russian, KGB, Chinese-influencing algorithms, yes. which help people, help people find us, which is great. Uh, another thing you can do to be super involved at the premium level is uh, share with us your story of Jewish names in your family. Names, name changes, first names, last names. Uh, why did you end up named Scott when Grandpa was Saul? Why did you end up named Saul, Saul when Grandpa was Scott? Um, was your family's name changed at Ellis Island or elsewhere uh, or at the courthouse in Baltimore? Call us, 914-570-4869. We are doing an episode on Jewish names in just a couple weeks, and we want to give a last chance for you guys to get involved. Try to keep your message under a minute. We have discovered by having this listener line that we are a loquacious people. <laughs> that often people will begin by saying, I'm going to keep this to under a minute. And three and a half minutes like, later. I, I don't have a comment. I have a really long comment. <laughs> uh, people, practice it first and then keep it to under 60 seconds. Or when you do it and it ends up being three minutes, call back with the 60 second version. Um, and, and ask yourself, what other podcast lets you name a host? No other podcast. No other podcast. Um, and then if you want the super, this is in ascending order of closeness to us, right? Uh, vote for Liel's name. Rate us. Give us your name story for our name episode, 914-570-4869. And then if you actually want to grasp my hand and give it a hearty pumping handshake, you can come see me April 11th at Smith College where I will be giving a talk titled The Jew and the Podcast. <laughs> Uh, you can find me on Smith College's website, or you could just know that if you show up at Smith College on April 11th, there I will be. April 28th, I'll be at One Day University in New York City. Go to onedayu.com and find out about my talk, American Jews, colon, where are we now? Well, we're 
in New York City. And then- We're in New York City complaining about bagels. That's right. And Where then else would we be? May 30th, I will be at Hebrew College's Storytelling Gala. Go to hebrewcollege.edu and find out more about that. Mazel tovs. I'm going to start with a mazel tov for Al Podolsky. He's a grad student at the University of Ottawa. He's a huge fan, weekly listener of our show, and he has been chosen to present an essay that he wrote on uh, on Jewish custom, Jewish midchagim, at the Chabad on Campus Symposium. And uh, he actually was going to be traveling to nearby me, but I couldn't see him. But he said, let's get together and have coffee. And I would have loved to do that, but it turned out that I was not going to be available. But I wanted to give him a mazel tov for uh, being selected to- Our uh, favorite Jewish custom is writing to us and telling us what's up with your life. Yeah, and, and Al Potolsky, we we think great things are in store for you. Mazeltov Vasimentov. What else do we have? We have a really, really big one, as I understand it. We have a cascade of continuity, Jewishly. Well, first I want to start out with a shout out to the teens at Temple Shari Tefillo Israel in New Jersey. I, I spent the evening with them a few weeks ago, and they were just amazing and so smart and so thoughtful about their Jewish identity in a way that I, and I told them, was just so not when I was their age. And part of it is because the, you know, the world is changing a bit and they sort of have to be, but they were just so smart, and I just wanted to thank everyone who who, who brought me out there. Are you? Would you say that children are the future? They are the future. If you, I think if you teach them well, you can and let them. They lead can lead the way. The way. Yeah. Well, they don't really do drugs anymore, do they? No, they just vape and play Fortnite. <laughs> Fortnite. They vape and Fortnite. Not these guys. They these don't... were great. But yes, we have a big, big, big Mazel Tov to Malier and her husband Nick Hagen. Obviously, Malier is the Food Network personality and friend of the show and frequent guest. They had their first baby. Bernadette Rosemary Yeh Hagen. Uh, she was born on March 30th. And if you follow Molly on Instagram, you sort of saw a lot of the lead up to, you know, her. she was doing a lot of food prep. So like her, she has several freezers stocked with food already. She was nesting. She has Passover set. Like, and it's in the freezer. It's amazing. It was really fun to watch. And it's so exciting. Molly and Nick, we are so happy for you. Mazel tov. And we, mazel have, tov. we have another baby-related mazel tov in from the listener line. This is Alan from Oak Park, Illinois. And I want to wish a hearty mazel tov to Leah Koenig, uh, who is a recent uh, contributor to the uh, Unorthodox Food episode. Leah and her husband, Yoshi Fruchter welcomed a baby girl Monday, so a mazel tov to them and to big brother Max. Leah Koenig was at um, Tablet's Food event um, at the JCC earlier this week, and it was like six days after she had her baby. And that is how committed she is to Jewish food, and I respect that. Did Amazing. she bring the baby, or was the baby home? Baby was home. Baby- Leah Koenig, <laughs> one, of the, one of the great Jewish food writers out there. Mazel tov, Leah. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. There are lots of articles there. So if you like to read and you want something to read, go to tabletmag.com. You can ask for our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and putting newsletter in the subject line. We often come to you live to book us or to advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross, that's cross with a K, jcross at tabletmag.com. And of course, you need to wear and carry unorthodox as well. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find some unortho shirts, but also unortho onesies, unortho mugs, unortho pencils, whatever else. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod join our Facebook group where you can now vote for Liel's middle name 
Our show is produced by Josh Cross, and our associate producers are Sara Fredman Ader and Noah Levinson. Our editor is Sophia Steiner Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Daniel Cohen of Temple Sharei Tefillah Israel of South Orange, New Jersey. We come to you from Argo Studios, which is Pete Buttigieg's vice presidential nominee. Shalom, friends. 